As we begin, let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's go to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. ahead to verse 13 and start there. Luke 24 verse 13. Now Jesus has been crucified and there has been an empty tomb that has been found and has been raised from the dead. Verse 13. Now the same day two of them were going to the village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you, going, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days verse 19 what things Jesus asked about Jesus of Nazareth they replied he was a prophet he was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and what is more it is the third day since all this took place in addition some of our women were amazed us they went to the tomb this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. They did, the day is almost over. So he went and he stayed with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to to give it to him. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us on the road and opened scripture to us? A while back ago, I introduced this concept and this, this thought of, of being able to see and see clearly. We, we examined and looked at the scripture and passage in which this man was blind and Jesus healed him and it said, what do you see? And he says, I see men and they are as trees. And then Jesus healed him a second time. And, it, and we looked at it and we saw what was going on all around there. It wasn't so much that Jesus was weak on power. Jesus was using this as a, as a metaphor, as an example of what was going on with the disciples all together that they saw, but did they clearly see? And how sometimes you and I, we may see, but do we see clearly? 
here today in Luke 24, these guys are walking down and they know that Jesus was this prophet, that he was powerful in word and deed. They know that, that he, was, he was taken under arrest and crucified. And they know and they have heard of a resurrected Jesus, of an empty tomb. They know all these things, yet they're missing something. They're missing the man they're talking about right there in front of them, right? They see, but do they clearly see? Their eyes may be open, but are they seeing what's in front of them? And it says that they did not recognize him, or they were kept from recognizing him. Now, I don't know if that was Jesus' doing or if it was their own doing. But I wonder at times, am I kept from seeing God clearly? When things are going pretty hard, I may ask, where is God? When things are difficult, when you get that call in the middle of the night, or when your, your marriage is rocky, or your kid is, is sick, or somebody you love passes away, you may ask, where is God? And the thing is, is we know the power of God. We know the power of Jesus. We know that he was this prophet. We know that he was powerful in word and deed. We know that he was, he was put under Pont, uh, Pontius Pilate. Can't talk today. We know that he was crucified. And then we know that people went to his tomb and it was found empty. We know these things. But there's moments when we, even when we know that, we still wonder, where's God? Even when we see those things, we still have a hard time seeing God. And if these guys right here with Jesus can have a hard time seeing God, and if I can have a hard time seeing God, maybe you can have a hard time seeing God as well. I think our, my problem, maybe not yours, but my problem, is similar to that of the Israelites. Let's go to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. The Israelites are, are free from Egypt. They've been following this man Moses, following God into this desert, and they come up to this mountain. And Moses goes up on this mountain, and we start in verse 32, or verse 1 in chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming, excuse me, <clears throat> just lost it right there. Let's try again. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go out before us, up out of Egypt. As for this, sorry. Come, make us gods who will go before us. As this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered, to them, take off your golden earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. Verse four, he took what he uh, what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then he said, "These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt." When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, "Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord." So the next day, the people rose up early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and, pre uh, and presented fellowship offerings. So here, the Israelites are, are 
are at this foot of this mountain. By the way, there's this big cloud, this big smoke, this big powerful thing taking place on this mountain. There's thunder, there's lightning. And they, they look and they say, where's Moses? Not sure where he is. And they fashion this golden calf. Now, I've given the Israelites a hard time over the years. Like, I haven't fully gotten why they do what they do. And I kind of give them a bad rap and, and, and start to kind of, you know, judge them a little bit. But if you think about where they came from, they came out of Egypt. And in Egypt, the culture in which they lived in was a, was, was a little messed up. See, there's multiple gods in this culture of Egypt. And they had lived there for years and years and years. And their understanding of gods with a little g was infected. <laughs> and so gods with a little g in Egypt were locational. They like set in certain areas or over certain things or over certain parts of nature. They were very locational. And so they, they had this concept of gods with a little g could only be in this area or that area or this area. So if you think about when the Israelites traveled and they would wonder and they wondered and the relationship was just this up and down constantly, well, they were moving over this location. And so their thought was, okay, we know God was with us in this spot, but what about this spot? Okay, we, now we know that God was with us here, but what about here? And so they were constantly viewing Yahweh the way they were viewing these gods with a little g. So that was one thing that was going on against them when it became with this gods with a little g. The other thing is the way they worshiped the Egyptians, worshiped all these gods, these multiple gods with a little g that actually did not exist. But the way they worshiped them was through this physical item called an idol, usually fashioned by gold. Now, I always thought that, that the calf was just the representation of, of the god with a little g of Baal. But this calf, this golden calf, was used for multiple gods in multiple areas, in multiple minds, and multiple thoughts. Like this golden calf was something that was common to them. But what it was, was this was a way for them to focus and see something tangible and physical for the spiritual being that they thought was there. That's what this idol was. So what's going on here? What's going on with the Egyptians? I mean, with the Israelites? They're seeing this big, powerful, spiritual thing take place. But they need something physical. They need something tangible. And so they fall into this trap of syncretism. Syncretism taking two opposite things and putting them together, syncing them together. They take what they learned in Egypt about these little gods and they take Yahweh and they put it together and they say, hey, we need something physical to worship him because look at what Aaron says. Aaron doesn't say, Let, we're, get ready because tomorrow we're going to worship this God or that God. He says, get ready for today we're going to worship the Lord. Translate Yahweh. So his attention with this golden calf is towards God. And look at the beginning of that connection. He says, where's the, they, the people start crying out, where's this guy Moses? We don't know where he is, so let's, let's fashion together this, this golden calf here. See, Moses has been that which was physical and tangible for them. They knew God was with them because they had Moses. Now, Moses, where is he? We need this physical element. So, 
Like I said earlier, if they can do that, maybe I can fall into that same trap. Maybe I can fall into the same trap where I need something very physical and something very tangible to see God more and more. Here's what I think it looks like for me. Maybe not for you. Get ready, because today I'm going to worship. And when I say that, and I, 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 I say that out loud or I say that within myself, here's what I'm thinking. I'm headed to a specific place at a specific time with a certain type of outfit. I'm going to arrive there, and there's going to be rows or pews. Uh, there's going to be a song and then a, a welcome and then the two songs and a prayer and then two more songs and a communion with the now separate and apart offering, right? And then there's going to be another song and maybe even a, a, another song after that if that particular church has children's worship. And then there's going to be a sermon. And then there's going to be a song of invitation. And then there's going to be a prayer. And all the while it's done by one individual who's standing up here. Unless you remember the days, I can remember when my dad preached, there was these benches up here that kind of sat behind him. Y'all had those here, I think. And I always thought those were like my dad's bodyguards, you know. They were there to protect them because they sat real still, you know. But when I, when I say worship, that's what I, what I picture in my head. And anything outside of that, anything a little bit different than that, Start to get a little uncomfortable. I start to not really be sure about things. I start to wonder. And then I start creating these statements in my head. And over the years of growing up in the church, these are the statements that I've heard, and I'm, I've cut them short. It starts off like this. We need more singing. Ah, uh, there was too much singing today. I don't like these new song books. You know, like when they went from yellow to green or yellow to red. You lost 728B. I don't know where it went. I don't like these new song books. I don't like using PowerPoint and a screen. Or I just don't see why we can't just sing from our hearts without any printed words. You know, like the first century Christians. I don't like singing during this time. It's way too distracting for me. Or why don't we do, sing during this time? The quietness is distracting for me. I can't believe that we have mic singers. Or I don't understand why we can't have mic singers. I can't believe we're not having class this morning or an extended worship. Or why don't we have shorter classes and an extended worship? I can't believe the lights are dim. Or why is it so bright in here? Why is it so cold? Why is it so hot? Wait, no, we don't ever say that. <laughs> Why is the song leader sitting down the, during this song? Why don't we raise our hands or kneel on our, or down on our knees? Or, or why are they raising their hands? Why do we have to clap? Why am I the only one clapping? Why do I have no rhythm? <laughs> and when we think about worship, you know, the slot between 10 and 11.30-ish. We start analyzing about how we thought the sermon was. Whether it was too long or too short, today it's going to be too long, I promise you. When I timed this out last night, 
It was after 30 minutes long. And I thought about cutting it short, but then I thought that would be counterproductive to my whole idea. We think whether or not the preacher said exactly the, what we wanted him to say or how he wanted, we wanted him to say it, whether he struck a chord or stepped on our toes or just really didn't go anywhere. See, it, it begins with statements that are about our comfort. It begins with statements that are about our opinions. It begins with thoughts and analyzing this moment here in which we all gather together. And I'm not saying that we can't have opinions or ideas or thoughts or things we like or dislike. But it's the moment in which we draw a line in the sand. The moment that we start saying things that are not okay based on our own opinions or our own ideas or our own comforts. I'm not talking about scriptural reasons. I'm talking about those times in which we have this feeling of this this discomfort. We didn't really like something, and we begin to say how that was not okay. And in those moments, guys, in those moments, when I have done that and when I do that, I have made myself into a golden calf. I have put all the focus and attention of this great big cloud of smoke and lightning and thunder, all of that in on me. Right? And I'm being no different than the Israelites were in that moment of idolatry, of taking this golden calf and using it as a focus towards God. Ask yourself, do you find yourself in that problem, in that, in that moment where you're sharing an opinion about what took on in, in, in this time and your direction and your attention was all about yourself? See, it's easy to go there. Because like the Israelites, we're affected by our culture. We live in a culture where it's all about me. I get what I want, when I want, how I want it, the the exact way I I want it. And if I didn't, and it was messed up a little bit, I get to return it and send it back or reorder. Any moment that I'm in discomfort, any moment that I'm not comfortable, I can figure out a way to make it happen that I am comfortable. And I'm taught all day long that it's all about me. I mean, think about it. The world in which we live in, of, of a, a world of social media, how much time we, we get to post our thoughts, our opinions, our ideas. We put it out there for people to see, and it's all about us. There's more selfies taken now than family photos. Think about that for a moment. Family photos are hard and scary, I get it. There's a lot of fighting that takes on. Some people need therapy after them. But think about the culture in which we live in. It's all about the self. And if we're living in that culture, the other six days of the week, when we walk into here, are we not going to be affected by that? We are. And so what is the solution? That's the problem. What is the solution? Will we, the Lamar Avenue Church of Christ, we desire to be a people group that connects with God, that see him clearly. And we want to do that through sincere worship, through this time here. 
through our other times that we gather together and worship together. We want to do that through sincere worship in our, in our own lives individually too as well. We want to do that through spiritual disciplines and, and discipleship, being a follower of Jesus. See, all that, those three things about connecting with God is all about taking the attention off of us and, and continuing to put it on him. Spiritual disciplines, habits. When you hear the word spiritual discipline, you might think of, of that which like uh, your dis church discipline, when, when you deal with somebody who is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But spiritual discipline, spiritual habits, like Jesus, you look at him, if we're following him, he had these in his life. He didn't just grab the, the scrolls and walk down to the Sea of Galilee and sit down and stroll them out and have a cup of coffee and take a quick picture to put on social media because it looked cute. He did that because he wanted to connect with God. He opened the scrolls and he studied them and he memorized them because he wanted to connect with his father. He didn't meditate on God just, just to do it. He did it because he was intentionally turning his focus every day on his father. He fasted to take off the attention of himself and even his hunger to turn his direction and his attention and his energy and his mind on God. So ask yourself, what are you doing the other six days? What are you doing the other six days? Because if your life isn't sitting around habits towards God those six days, how in the world on the seventh, or how in the world on this day, is it going to be any different? I was reminded of a couple of stories here within this last couple of weeks. There were, uh, it was about church bombings. Uh, I read about this one church bombing uh, a couple of years ago that took place in the Middle East. These Christians were in their, their, their sanctuary, their worship area. And they were praising God and they were worshiping him. And outside were some terrorists who decided to blow up the place. And it, and it blew up the back end of it and, and people were hurt, people were killed. The Christians there started mending to them. But then they, they started in their anger getting real frustrated and in their pain getting more hatred. And they went out into the streets and they started this riot and they started this war. And like 70 Christians attacked all these people who may or may not have had anything to do with this bombing. What do you do the other six days? Might determine what happens on that seventh day. And then I, I was thinking about that. And a couple of years ago, this, this guy was walking through the parking lot and I saw him. He kind of had a, a pep in his step and he was just kind of exciting. He had all these books and all these things and he was, he was coming in and and I immediately thought, okay, this is like a curriculum salesman. He's about to come in and, and tell me all the things I need to buy from their organization for our, our Sunday school class. And he comes on back to my office and he sits down. And this guy is just excited about God and what God is doing. And he begins to tell me this story about these Christians over in the Middle East. And how this minister is just really directing people who have never heard the gospel into following Jesus and, and denying even their family. And they're in here 
in this one moment, and they were all worshiping God, worshiping Yahweh. And a bomb goes off. These terrorists attack their church. These individuals get up, and they, they're taking care of their wounded. They're loving on the ones who are hurting, and they're weeping, and they're crying, and they're sad. And in that moment, they transition all of that, and they walk back into their blown-up sanctuary, and they start worshiping God. They start thanking God for his great love, his great power. What do you do the other six days? Or what do you do the other 166 hours of your week that may or may not affect the two hours or one and a half or one hour in here? So while we're in Haiti, that every morning we got to spend and worship with uh, the staff there. And I come in on that, that first Monday, and I sit towards the back. I think it was that Monday. I sit towards the back, and I'm standing by this, this kid. Uh, his name is Noah. Noah, but Noah. Uh, his name used to be Sufran, Suffering. And he's standing there beside me, and we're, we're singing songs, uh, I believe, were to God and Jesus. I did not understand the language, uh, but I was assured that they were. I could pick up on some things that told me they were. And no way he is clapping away, because they clap, and they clap. And so I'm sitting there, I'm kind of doing the, the half clap, you know. Every so often I'll bring it up here, and I go down trying to get in beat, and I try to, try to kind of mumble the words, what I think is going on, just the sound of it. And I kind of just sit there, and no way, he's just, he's just excited. And he turns to me. I'm not talking like just looks at me. He full out turns to me. The pew's right here. They have pews too. Turns to me, and I'm facing that way, and he just starts clapping and smiling right at me. I have two options. Because Noah didn't give me many. He only gave me two. I can join in where it's uncomfortable for me. I can join in where I know I'm going to get out of rhythm at times and he's going to make his smile all the more bigger. Or, option B, I can join in. He didn't leave me that option, really. He was engaging me into worship that was a little bit different than me. And in that moment, as I'm sitting there clapping and I'm singing a song that I'm not sure what the words are, I start to see this great cloud of smoke and hear the thunder of God's voice and see the lightning of his power of hope that he has given to the Haitians there because he's building a kingdom. <laughs> That cannot be destroyed. When I let go of my insecurities, when I let go of my issues, when I let go of my comfort, when I took all the attention off of myself and directed it towards Yahweh, I found myself in this sincere worship. I'll close with this. Yeah, <laughs> 
among the Haitians. You can kind of pick up what he's singing, right? But as I'm sitting there in the circle of Americans, in the middle is this Haitian tall guy who's singing this song. And he's praising God. And I can't imagine what life he has in the evenings. I can't imagine what he deals with on a daily basis. But his voice in that moment is the loudest in the room. Everybody else is silent. His voice is the loudest, and here's where my attention went. It went straight to God. When your voice is the loudest, when you have the most to say, when your opinion matters the most to your people who are listening, where does your, the attention go? Does it go back on you, or does it go back on him? When your voice is the loudest, do you worship God and people see your good deeds? See, Paul calls us to live a life of worship by offering ourselves as a living sacrifice daily, right? And this is your spiritual act of worship, he says. Now, see, I find myself struggling with that because too often I want to worship my life. Too often I want to worship my life. And I just become this golden calf. All the focus isn't on me. But what God calls us to is to live a life of worship. When our voice is the loudest, we turn it to him. May you come as we stand and sing.